Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Pure Hoops podcast most definitely does reflect the views of our management. Here's three-time NBA champ BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. On this edition of the Pure Hoops podcast, BJ Armstrong and yours truly, Eric Newman, had the chance to uh, pipe in with the one and only Cedric Cornbread Maxwell, two-time NBA champion with the Boston Celtics and still a radio voice of the Celtics. Uh, Cedric's had a quite a life in basketball, and uh, we dug into a lot of things, including the current protests around the country, his own experience with racism growing up in the South, the NBA reopening, although it was before all the details emerged for the bubble in Orlando. But we also got to some things back out on the court, including how great Celtics Jason Tatum was playing before the league shut down, and some classic stories from the 80s, including the incredible 1981 Eastern Conference Final, known as the bloodbath between the Philadelphia 76ers and the Boston Celtics, and the first time he ever faced Larry Legend in practice. We'll bring you that interview in a bit, but first, the news around the NBA return continues to get even more challenging, and in many people's views, even more skeptical. You have to wonder, with the continued spikes in COVID-19, both in Florida and around the country, along with players trying to get on the same page with how the return to the floor can benefit the social justice challenges and situation we've seen around the country, which of course have been highlighted by very, very moving and hopefully productive protests in the wake of the George Floyd tragedy. There's a lot to still figure out, and as we're here in late June, we're all yearning for the game of basketball. But we have to ask ourselves, is it worth putting these players at risk? Is it worth compromising the future? Is it worth compromising the league? And what positive can be had in the players returning to the floor, utilizing the platform of the NBA, of social media platforms, of television partners, to try to continue to utilize the game to help make the world a better place? A lot to think about as we continue to talk basketball and intertwine the events of the world into our shows. Hopefully everyone is well out there, everyone is safe, enjoyed a great Father's Day weekend, and hopefully things continue to get better around this country. And maybe, just maybe, we'll see some great basketball ahead this summer. Hope you enjoy this interview. B.J. Armstrong, Cedric Cornbread Maxwell, yours truly, Eric Newman. B.J., we've had some great voices on here, but never have we had a voice on who is uh, returning to quote-unquote normalcy uh, in a T.J. Maxx. I'd like to welcome the one and only former Boston Celtic. Two-time champion, 1981 NBA Finals MVP, Cedric Cornbread Maxwell. 
Appreciate you, you taking went. the time. Cornbread, what's the uh, what's the ambiance there right now? The ambiance is all these red stickers on, on things that look like they're sale prices on them. So, <laughs> so I'm buying I'm buying lotion and, and and food products that I hadn't gotten in a while. I'm a, a big TJ Maxx Marshalls man. So this is the first day that it's actually opened here in Boston. And uh, I think phase two. So everybody's excited right now about this. So, Cedric, you've seen so much history in Boston, so much history in the NBA, and we are at the most unique, unprecedented time now between what has happened with the pandemic and then, of course, what has been going on in the country uh, the, the last couple of weeks around the, the tragedy, uh, around George Floyd, the response, mm-hmm. the, the movement hopefully towards real change and equality. Um, what's that been like through your lens as someone who's paid attention to these things for as long as you had? Well, you know, I've seen so many different things over my lifetime. I've been around a little bit longer than BJ. And the thing that, you know, I laugh about was, well, it wasn't laughable, but I, I called attention to was, I think a couple of weeks ago, somebody was asking me about, you know, something that happened in my life in the race standpoint and i i thought about it and found a picture of it myrtle beach south carolina many years ago well when i was about eight years old there was a literally there was a chain link fence they had a black beach and there was a chain link fence which which went from the top of the beach all the way extended out in the water as long as the football field essentially were people of color could not get over to white people. So I have an actual picture of that. And it was just astounding to think that in my lifetime, it's been like that where, you know, literally you were in like uh, just behind its barrier. So I've seen so many different things over my lifetime that uh, absolutely it it doesn't seem like anything is going to surprise me right now. But the George Floyd thing was, was absolutely horrific. Uh, with the the whole world to see, so maybe there'll be change from it. I, I hope so. I I hope that that uh, you know, people of color have always been the most forgiving. I hope this isn't the time that they they look down and 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 they they turn they you know they celebrate the life and the passing and then now go back to normalcy. I, I just hope that doesn't happen. Uh, with you there for sure, and and your description of that fence eerily sounds like the fence that's now up around the white house, but I, uh, I digress. Um, <laughs> some, some, some positives here, starting with, um, some guys in the league and more specifically some members of the Boston Celtics being out in front here and mm-hmm. making their voices and feelings heard. Um, what are your thoughts about, um, Jalen Brown's actions and what he represents both currently and for the future regarding this issue and how the league can make an impact. I hope all players are like that. Uh, during the 80s and the, the 90s, you know, players weren't like that. You know, everybody criticized Michael Jordan for not being, uh, you know, that that prompt. But right now there's a social media platform which is out here. Now, Jordan would have had a big one if he had decided to step out like that. But with guys like Jalen Brown, and Tatum, you know, I, I love it. The fact that Jalen Brown drove 15 hours down to Atlanta to 
protest. Now, I did see him, and I, I told him I, when I see him, I'll be mad with him because I saw him for a minute without a mask on, and I didn't like that. But for the most part, you have to lead by example in this world right now. And taking the fact that, you know, it's, it's, you're not by yourself anymore. You know, I think for the longest time, NBA players always felt like they're, they've been by themselves and, you know, there was just one person. But now we realize we're, we're a big family. So, I, you know, I, I like the fact that, you know, that Jalen and, and several other Celtics, Marcus Smart, you know, stepped into the front and, and put, their, put a face uh, to an issue which is there and said, hey, I'm, I'm not just a basketball player. Um, I'm a part of this human race, and, and I'm trying to find ways to, to express myself and help my fellow, fellow men out. Yeah, you know, uh, Max, you know, that, those are great points. And can you talk about, you know, coming to a city like Boston mm-hmm. and what have you seen? I mean, there's, you know, so much, you know, whether it was Bill Russell before yourself, now the, the climate of, around the country, really around the world. What was that like for you coming to a city like Boston? Well, you know, everybody wants to say you came to a city like Boston, that there was a racial, you know, tension to it. Well, there was a racial tension throughout it during the 60s. Mm-hmm. And, and right. that's when I grew up, you know, that's, I grew up with busing. And then busing mm-hmm. had just kind of gotten to Boston. So Boston, I've told people, Boston doesn't have a, everybody wants to say Boston has a claim on race. They don't. Boston doesn't have a, a, a hold on racism. Racism has been alive and well all over the country. You know, I was I was shocked to see that there was a protest, Black Lives Matter, in Salt Lake City, Utah. You and I have been there before. You, right. you know people of color there. So, I mean, it's taken a whole new tenor, the way things have gone. And, and Boston has, Boston, this is the big thing about, especially the Celtics. The Celtics were the first team to have a black player. They were the mm-hmm. first team to have a black head coach in Bill Russell. They were first team in the NBA to have starting five that were all black. So Boston, Red Arback, what he did during his tenure, he didn't care if you were black or white or green. He just, he wanted the best players on the floor. And I think that's all we want in life. We want the best situation for anybody out there in life. If you're qualified for the job or qualified to do something, you know, you feel like you should, you, your, your skin shouldn't be the issue. It should be, you know, what you're able to bring to the table. Yeah, Max, people forget the history of the Celtics. They, they tie in that Boston stereotype. They mm-hmm. look at the events that happened right before you got there around the busing issue, which were obviously ugly, disgusting, hateful events. But to your point, those things were happening all over the country. And people forget what Red and, and Bill Russell, to start with, uh, achieved together along with the rest of that team and the yeah, things that yeah. were implemented I mean, did, because did you, of that. Yeah, absolutely. The, you, you saw the movie. I'm sure you guys saw the movie um, The Green Book. And there was a reference in that Academy Award movie, uh, winning movie, about the Boston Celtics coming to a southern city and not being able to eat at this restaurant. They talked about Bill Russell saying, you know, where did the big kahuna eat? eat in, did he eat in this restaurant? He said, I don't know. That's what the guy said. I don't know where he ate, but I know he didn't eat here. So that was one thing that Bob Cousy, the great Bob Cousy, uh, Hall of Famer with the Celtics, always said. He, he said, I wish I could have done more 
when it came to showing how much I love my teammates because there were many times that Sat Sanders and people like that would they would play a game and essentially have to go someplace else to eat and not be able to go in the same place their white teammates were going. So there there are a lot of different things that have happened over the years. Fast forwarding to the present, all of these things we're discussing happening and the league is trying to figure out its return in Orlando, targeting Mm -hmm. July 31st. Uh, What's your feeling on it? And what's the vibe around the Celtics right now with this uh, potential pathway to NBA basketball and playoff? I'm excited about it. I just don't know what the hell they're going to do. <laughs> this is like I keep hearing about these guys. They're going to be playing two games in one day or they're going to be playing. I mean, I don't know. And I think that's the excitement about it. The fact that they're going to come back and, and you're going to have all these basketball players in one place. Uh, that to me is outstanding. But what happens if somebody else gets COVID on one of the teams? Is that team disqualified? Is that player disqualified? Does he have to sit out? One thing the commissioner made sure that he said, and I love this, he said, if we get started, we're not going to stop until we crown a champion. So I think there are a bunch of contingency plans which are out there. I hope they don't have to be used, but uh, it's going to be pretty exciting and a little scary to see how this thing is going to go, go down. I know as a broadcaster for the Celtics, I won't be in the building because they're trying to keep that bubble extremely small. So we'll be probably doing radio broadcasts on television throughout, you know, the Boston area or around the world with our station, but uh, via TV. So it's it's going to be strange from my standpoint of trying to broadcast a game. I'm just trying to process that right now. You and uh, you and Mr. Grande together watching a screen doing the game. Six feet away. Six, six feet away. Six now. feet away, we'll, of we'll, course. Put, put that away. in. Put, put that. <laughs> and that's what amazes me. How can players be six feet away? <laughs> that's well, that's See, BJ's that, question. That, that, that's the thing. BJ, if you are guarding somebody like uh, Steph Curry from six feet away, <laughs> you might as well go, well, I guess we'll start over. We'll start something new. So this is going to be really interesting to see. Max, when the when the players, if they, you know, if this does happen, what do you think the game is going to look like? Because I mean, they're just, you know, they only have three weeks or so, or mm-hmm. or the short length of time. What do you think the games will actually look like and resemble? Because they're going right to the playoffs. I think they're going to be a little raggedy at first because guys are going to be getting back in shape. One thing that you do realize, BJ, is this, that there are a lot of guys in this league right now who are playing in the NBA, like a Jason Tatum, who hadn't touched a basketball in about two and a half, three months. This is probably the first time in their lives since they played basketball that you think that they haven't touched a basketball in that, that length of time. So I think that love of the game is going to be that much more because you didn't get a chance to play. Something was taken away from you. But at the same time, I think it's going to be a little raggedy because guys are trying to get in shape and and, and trying to learn the speed of the game and maybe not wanting to touch each other as much. But uh, once they start playing and the, the, um, the competitive juices start flowing, I think everything will be fine then. Max, I have to ask, and and you mentioned his name, Jason Tatum. You've seen so many great Celtic talents. You've seen so many different players, uh, 
either blossom or either not live up to expectation. Mm -hmm. Can you share what watching Tatum's stretch was like leading into the stoppage of play and the role and rhythm that he was in? Two, Two stories about Tatum. One would be the first story when the first year he got here. He kind of knew me, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, just say hello. Well, 30 for 30 came on Celtics Lakers uh, during that week. So I guess, in, so he comes, to, I'm, I'm at the game early, and he comes on the court, and he starts yelling, cornbread, cornbread. I say, dude, what's wrong with you? He goes, man, I watched that 30 for 30. Damn, you were bad. So, so, so that was, you know, homage to, to, you know, old school basketball right there. Who he is as a player, man, it's, it's scary to see, especially in this league now, at that size with that much quickness. LeBron James said it best. There was a picture of LeBron and Tatum on the court together when Tatum, literally, the Lakers were double teaming Tatum to get the ball out of his hands in that Lakers-Celtic game late in the season. And, um, you know, he just put on a show. And LeBron James later on, there was a picture of LeBron and Tatum. And he said, Tatum, he said, that's a young lion right there. So I'm just going to call him Simba right now. I mean, he is taking it to another level watching them play. You know, length, ability to shoot the basketball, quickness, putting it on the floor. I think during the, during the 80s, I think you could have taken maybe some things away because you could have been physical with it. You could put a hand on guys. But as this league is gone now, it's, it's become so soft that it's about quickness and speed. And uh, you can't touch these great offensive players. And, and that, to me, is ridiculous. You know, a guy's that good, that'd be like guarding Isaiah back in the day and saying you couldn't put a hand on him. Uh, because, you know, it would it would have been, been like, you must be crazy. Jordan, all these people with this quickness, you, you better be able to put a hand on them to slow them down. You know, uh, Max, you know, you when you look at the, the Celtics team and, and certainly, you know, Tatum is a wonderful young player. What what is the thought or the do you have a sense of like, are they feel that they are ready to contend now potentially to win a championship? I know certainly they have the talent they're building or they feel they can make a run in the next three to five years. What's kind of the sense here of their championship window here? I think the window, their their window of opportunity is wide open because you have young players and, and they're on their, their rise. You got Brown and Tatum, who two dynamic forwards. You got Kimball, who is still right now kind of in his prime. Uh, you 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 have Gordon Haywood, who came back from a, a horrific injury, who has been playing, who's having almost an all star year. And I think the only difference now is you, you don't have a big guy in the middle, but Daniel Tice, uh, the center from Germany at about 6'9", has done a very good job of playing that particular role. And as you know now, the game has changed. If you're over 6'5", now, if you're 6'8", if you're over 6'8", in the NBA, you're like a dinosaur, man. You, you can't even play because you can't guard. The, the tallest guy the Celtics have on their, their roster right now is Taco Fall. Taco Fall is seven three, seven four. He can't even get in the games. He, he he's in the G League, and so that just shows you how the game has changed. It's about foot speed. It's about skill. It's about being able to put it on the floor, guard multiple positions. So the game has changed, and the Celtics have a to me 
a legitimate chance if if they get hot at the right time to uh, to maybe win it this year. And and don't forget about the potential defensive player of the year. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Marcus Smart. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Marcus to me, and I've said this, and, and I had a small little run-in uh, with our guy Mark Jackson about this. At one time, I had made mention, I said, I felt that Marcus Smart might be the best defender at the guard position the Celtics have ever had. And Mark Jackson came back and told me something the next day, and he said, I heard you say that. That was interesting. But, you know, I played against Dennis Johnson, and Dennis Johnson to me would have been better. I said, and I'm looking at him like, dude, I played with him. (laughs) I played with Dennis Johnson. I didn't play against him. I saw him every day. So Dennis was an unbelievable player, but Marcus can guard, I think, almost every position he's been able to guard. And for a while, even uh, Porzingis. At seven foot three, you know they that. they put Mar- they put Marcus on Porzingis. So the the ability to guard multiple positions at his size and the strength, I think, even passes the great Dennis Johnson. Dennis Johnson was one of my best friends and one of the best defenders around. Won the championship with it, but I still believe that Marcus is a tad bit better. Marcus's strength and. What he brings, I mean, we we could. I, I know uh, the conversation between the three of us uh, around around how different eras translate, and uh, what I want to get to now, of course, the classic 1981 Conference Finals, Celtics and Sixers. But you could plug Marcus Smart in that series, and he's oh, yeah, still Marcus yeah. Smart, and he's in that he's in that street fight. Yeah. So, you know, Cedric, one one of the things that um, you know, we started talking about doing this. Uh, before the world changed because, you know, 2020 is the 40-year window of when, you know, Larry Bird becomes your teammate, Magic Johnson goes to the Lakers, and obviously the the course of history in the league changes. And mm-hmm. there's so many pivotal matchups, moments, rivalries that made the league what it is. And, you know, you mentioned the Celtics-Lakers 30 for 30 uh, before, which is obviously a, a great piece of storytelling and a great rivalry. But it, it really starts with, with Boston and Philadelphia. So to, to, to set this up, you're obviously on the Celtics uh, through some rough years. And then mm-hmm. um, Larry joins the team, wins rookie of the year. You guys lose in five in 1980. Then the big trade is made to bring in uh, Robert Parrish and the draft pick that became Kevin McHale. So the 81 Celtics, the beginning of the year, knowing the additions, knowing you got to the conference finals the year before, What's the attitude and the vibe of that team going through that season? I still think that we were apprehensive because we didn't know what Kevin McHale was, who he was going to be. And Robert Parrish, you know, was a good player, but we didn't know how he was going to be. And Philly was just a juggernaut. When you're talking about having Dr. J and, and, and um, you know, you look at the guys they had, Maurice Cheeks and Andrew Tony, the Boston Strangler, and you, you go Daryl Dawkins and Caldwell Jones and Bobby Jones. Dude, these are, this, this team was stacked from top to bottom. You get all the way down to Steve Mix, and, you know, Steve Mix could play off the bench. And, and so there, there were some guys who could play at such a high level that we were still, I think we were still a little intimidated by who the Celtics about, you know, about playing these guys. We were still a little intimidated. So there were great matchups 
in the sixties and obviously the cities have always had this, you know, with New York included, there's always these sports rivalries and distaste, but did that feel like a rivalry before the series started or did it just feel like, okay, in order for us to get to the next level, we've got to beat this great team. Well, there was always, always a rivalry between Philly and Boston. You, you got to realize that that goes back to Chamberlain and, and Russell. And I think it just it, it just reached out, you know, that the nastiest fans in NBA and I think in the world might be in Philly <laughs> in football, <laughs> baseball, basketball. So, so, you know, you go there and, and, you know, when 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 fans start booing Santa Claus of the game, damn, you know, that that's a that, it don't take much to get them guys riled up. So it was just it, it was it was a great rivalry and the guys who played on the floor. You had Dr. J, who, you know, was MVP of this league, the way he was playing. And then you had Larry Bird, a, a guy who was coming who was coming to play. And... Okay. I had, had a TJ Maxx guy come tell me I had to pull the chair back because he wanted me to fall. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them you're talking Celtic Sixers and you're not to be disturbed. I had no idea. I, I, I gave I gave him that point, but no, that was just it was one of those things again where I remember it was the first time I ever guarded Doctor J. And dude, you know how it is when you guard a guy the first time. And you've been watching him on TV. You don't want to mm-hmm. touch him. You're just right. like nervous. I mean, I might as well have been a damn maitre d. When I was guarding Dr. J, okay, I'm looking at him like, damn, that was a nice move. Damn, that was another nice move. Damn, dude, that that was nice. (laughs) I finally had to get to the point where I felt like I could play against him and I could attack him. And that started to happen during 1981. We gave him so much respect in 1980 that we literally just like, okay, do whatever you want to. But then we realized in 1980, 1981 that they put their shoes on like us they put their jocks on like us and uh hey it's on and popping so the the series you know after four games you guys are in a 3-1 hole and mm-hmm. it's set it sets up three of the most dramatic elimination games that you, you can imagine in, in a row and um you know, it's it's a two point game. Dude, you, game. Let, me, let me tell you this, dude. You making my yep. blood pressure go up right now. That's the thing about that. that was like, dude, yeah. we we had three games. We were down three one. Going, you know, we had to play game five in Boston. We won game five, and then number six, we hadn't won in Philly, and seemed like forever. And we had to go back there to play number six, and yeah. we won that game. And it was it. I've never been to war. My father was in the military, but I felt like I was a soldier. That's and, how and that, that's how that battle went. It was just and, crazy. And that's the game I really want to dig into here. Um, you know, I'm 42 years old, so my introduction to the NBA was um, the middle of Celtics Lakers and watching all the NBA entertainment tapes as a kid, and seeing those clips and the passion and the physicality, and then when YouTube. Uh, emerged and that game six was made available to watch. I was blown away by the matchups, the level of play. Um, Paint the picture of an elimination game in the spectrum. You hadn't won there and I think 15 or 16 tries 
and you know the, the your basketball lives are on the line that night what, what was the wow. vibe going into an arena where every person in that arena except the ones wearing green wanted blood yeah yeah and and, and you know that that was it it was it was us against them and we were down by 15 points in the second quarter Dave Zinkoff, the great announcer, public address announcer, <laughs> comes on, right? As we're down by 15, they call a timeout. He says, tickets go on sale for the next series right after this game. Wow. That's what they did in L.A. to Russell in 69 with the balloons. The Sixers followed Oh, the my God, yes. And, and we all looked at each other collectively and said, not on this, not on, and, and the next play, I think that's when somebody I know who's talking on this phone right now got <laughs> knocked into the stands and then went back into a stance and attacked some fan. And everybody's like, well, did you get thrown out? No, the NPA didn't have those rules back then. <laughs> I hit the dude and then I came back in and kept playing. And then that was almost like a rallying cry. We were down 15, but by the time the quarter, by the time they got to halftime, we're only down by five. Now, I would not suggest that you go in the stands and, you know, do that. That was the thought right. out of the way. But those things happen when you're battling like that. And um, we end up getting back in that game. And, man, they were throwing beer. And just it was it was unbelievable. Chuck Daly actually was an assistant coach for the, for Billy Cunningham. And he's sitting there talking, and there was a fan, after I went in the stands, there was a dude who was challenging me, saying, you know what? He said, dude, right now, he said, I'll come, out, I'll come on this floor, and I'll come off all, all the stands, and I'll, I'll do something to you. And I'm like, dude, you, you and who else need to come out here? Because I'm about to mop the floor with his ass. That's what's about to happen. <laughs> and and then, then he was like, Chuck Daly told me, said, Chuck Daly looked at me and said, Yo, Max, Max, that dude's a killer. It's like, shit, I'm a killer. <laughs> At that particular point, I think he should have been more afraid of me than me being afraid of him. So, oh, you know, man. it was, it was, it, that's how it was. And it was nip and tuck, nip and tuck. And we ended up beating Philly like Larry hit a, a shot late in the game that hit the, hit the rim and finally bounced in. And, and we were able to corral a victory in Philly. And game, let me see, game five, let me make sure I get this right. Game four, game five, game six, game seven, all those games were decided by, I think, like one point. But, what, like, yeah, like seven points, I think, that was the, the, the uh, margin seven points over, over the Seven yeah. points difference over the, mar- over the course of four games, which is yeah. just yeah. Mi- yeah. mind-boggling. Yeah. And the drama of game six, you mentioned it, the momentum turns – and I would be doing us all a disservice if I didn't ask, what did that fan say to you after Dude, you're in you the know, stands? I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> all I know, I couldn't tell you. Dude, you just, you know, when they say you blank out, <laughs> you just like, you know, what happened? You just, you like, wait up. Like, I didn't know what happened. All I know is like, a, you know, I got pushed by Daryl Dawkins. I hit the fan and then he muttered some words. Like, I get back in the damn game or something he said to me. And, yeah. and I was jumping over a photographer. And when that, those words registered, I immediately jumped back over the photographer and helped that guy back to his seat. 
but and and then it was it was on and popping but but collectively i couldn't i i you know right now i could not tell you the words which came out of his mouth i could not tell you that I had all. to ask had to ask and and max i don't you know the clip still does all of this justice to to watch it the gritty video um i've got it set up on a, a archive sequence for us to have some fun with um after we put this show together, I mean, the camera is literally in the middle of the melee on the basement <laughs> and you've got Billy Cunningham in there and you're in there and Dawkins is in there and bird looks so pissed off because all he wants to do is get back to the game and get back to the fight between the lines. And, you know, the other moment that it, and, and let me just add, and BJ, you remember this and obviously Max, you know, this, the games at this time are still on tape delay. So all of this stuff yeah. is happening. And the only people that are seeing it live are the people in the arena before the game goes on broadcast later. So you go down the other end in the second half and Bobby Jones oh. dumps on Larry. Oh. And, as, off, and, dude. And, and as soon as that happens, and um, I can't remember who the baseline official was that night. It may have been Jake O'Donnell gives the overzealous block and one call. And all of a sudden, there is ice and water and beer thrown at you from the baseline. Yeah, yeah. The next thing you know, Kevin McHale has the mop, and he's cleaning off the backboard in the spectrum yep. like he's working the game as part of the crew. I mean, it's that, the most that, absurd that thing is, I've ever seen. Yeah, dude, that's how crazy it was. Like when they, the guy threw the ice, Bobby Jones dumped, and somebody threw a cup of water and they hit the backboard and splattered and I was so shocked you could see my reaction just like I was startled. I didn't know what was happening. So it was just oh man, it was it was it it was a moment in basketball that I will never forget. I mean I've I've been in a lot of you know big ones, played in some big games, but that game alone was like, okay, you we were we were literally fighting for our lives. Uh, our basketball lives at that time, and uh, and we did whatever it took. I mean, I remember saying that, you know, whatever it takes, we're gonna we're gonna do whatever it takes tonight to win this game. And that was just to get back to Boston to play a seventh game against these guys. You know, you know, Max. Um, you know, I always I always like to ask former players when you get the chance to see players in their prime, how quickly did you know that Larry Bird had a chance to be, you know, what we now come to say, Larry Bird? Like, did you see it immediately? You saw him dude, in his prime. Dude, I was the first guy to guard him. And I'm sitting on the stanchion. This is my problem. As a black player, we've been taught that this was a black game. So I hate coming in and I'm, I'm, I, I'm already on the team and I was averaging 19 and 10. The year before he got here, so he comes in. I'm sitting up on the there's a little rising uh, at this uh, high school gym, and uh, I'm sitting up on the stage. And I'm giving the slow clap as he comes out. I'm like, okay, here he comes, clap, 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 great white hope. Here we go, here we go. So I get out first play, you know, you know, I score on him. It wasn't hard to score on Larry. Now I go on the other end. Okay, let me see what he got. Got my hands down from about 15 feet away. Bam. Okay, maybe that was luck. Next shot, 17 feet away, 18, progressively deeper and deeper. 
I remember that practice ended, and I went to the first black person I could see, and I said, you know what? That damn white guy can play right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how that went. And then I said, God, to me, God's a funny God. God doesn't give me, as a, a prejudiced black player, he doesn't give me one great white player. He gives me the two greatest white players ever to play together, Kevin McHale and, and Larry Bird. So he, he put it in perspective about how the world is and, you know, what he can do. So it was, it didn't take long at all. It was that, that first day. And, and then every day that we got ready to play a game that year, you know, if the opposing team hadn't seen Larry, there's always some player would come up to me and go, hey, how's this bird kid? And I'd say, you'll find out in a minute. <laughs> so, Max, obviously the, the 81, this series is a, is a huge turning point for the franchise and for Larry. And you're mm-hmm. going into the game seven. Everything's on the line. Um, can you take us back, if, if you can recall, the locker room, the sweaty, steamy Boston Garden. Oh yeah. And and knowing knowing who is across from you that night and, and what those six games have been like. Well, I mean, what, what what's the vibe there? Well let's let's start off with my pregame first. Across the street we had a McDonald's. I took the ball boy over. I had a large Mac. I had I had a Mac. I had a large fry, supersize it. Uh, two apple pies and the orange soda. That's, that, that was my pregame. Come on, and, come and on. Me, uh, uh, cornbread, my I can't that. Dude, my teammates would tell you that. That was right before the game. I needed fuel, man. I was going out. I had to fuel up. So so that was my meal exact. I mean, I am talking, I'm talking like five minutes before the game. This is what I'm, this is what I'm eating right now is, as they're, they're diagramming play. So that started it out right there. And then everybody's just kind of looking at each other. And, you know, we're just like, hey, it's time to go. And like I said, it was in Boston. You're talking about pretty much it, it was the beginning of the summer. So it was probably around about, you know, maybe late May, you know, the, you know, in the spring, something like that. But it was one of those things where it was hot in the building. It was the seventh game. It was on a Sunday. Dude, it doesn't get any better than that. I know you play in Chicago. You think I ain't like that. But a seventh game, nationally televised, only place I could think that was more fear in me was the seventh game, if it had been the seventh game in Philadelphia. Because what they used to have in Philly in that sixth game, the, the atmosphere was they had Dave Zink off, but then they had the great Grover Washington Jr., the jazz, jazz mm-hmm. guy. Uh, had him playing the national anthem. <laughs> so it started out then then you had you had all those Philly fans who were there screaming and yelling and I mean it wasn't it wasn't unusual to see, you know, kids give you the finger in Philly. I mean it's like <laughs> I, I'm not talking about number one either. So 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 that was that was the atmosphere. But then you came back to Boston for that seventh game, our fans were just revved up. I think the Celtic fans are probably one of the most intelligent group of basketball fans around. And, and uh, they know the game up and down. You know, you win more championships than anybody else and have all those great players. You know, you're going to you're gonna pick it up. And uh, like I said, it was Larry's first opportunity. And we knew at that time, Philly knew and Boston knew at that time, that whoever won that game was going to be clear-cut favor to play against the Houston Rockets at that time with Moses Malone 
you know, being the difference between you winning and losing. And, and so we felt real confident, confident about trying to win the championship, both teams. Before, before I dig into just a few things from the game, did, did Red Auerbach ever come down to see you guys before a big game, or did he just let you guys do what you do and he was himself from his, uh, his perch there Red, at center court? Red was pretty much hands-off. Red was hands-off. He didn't – I think – and that was the smart thing about it. Great coaches don't – great GMs and stuff, they don't come back and try to give you a pep talk. That's up to the coach. Bill Fish did a great job of getting us in, and, and we had enough players – you know, you, you look at this this lineup, dude. Who we had? We had we had four guys who turned up be Hall of Famers: Nate Archibald, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, and Larry Bird. We had four guys on the floor who will be Hall of Famers. Across from us is Hall of Famers on the other side. Maurice Cheeks is over there. Um, Dr. J, a guy who you know would have been a Hall of Famer and would have been uh, Andrew Tony if he hadn't got hurt. So they, it was just it was it was just a battle. It was going to be a battle, and it was going to be it was going to be a chess match. That's what it's going to be. It's going to be a chess match. Whoever and, was able to 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 seal at the end was going to win. And, and and speaking of battles, you know the 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 second half, and and I've read quotes on this and seen interviews. It's pretty much like the. The officials said, "Okay, we're going to put the whistles in our pockets, and you guys are going to figure this out like you're at the park." Um, before we get into that, how great of a battle was Mo Cheeks and Nate Archibald to watch? Because those are two of the forgotten great guards of that time. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And yeah. you know, me being a New York guy, I, I've looked up to. To, to Archibald for a long time. And, and he was just an unbelievable player whose career obviously was in jeopardy of ending. And he, he goes to the Celtics and he's reborn. What, what was it like watching those two guys battle head to head? We had, he had Nate at that time was coming off his second Achilles injury. And so his quickness, a lot of his quickness wasn't, he didn't have as much quickness as he did when he first got in the league. He was a dart. But he still knew how to play the game at a high level because intellectually, now intellect was probably greater than his physical ability. But it was it was just fun to watch those two guys. Every position, though, he's just not one. Every position, man. I mean, you're talking about Bobby Jones, one of the great defenders of, that we've seen in this league. Dr. J, the high riser. Daryl Dawkins. I remember he was he was breaking breaking rims and backboards at the time. <laughs> so when he's coming to the hole and you literally, you're jumping out of the way because you didn't have to have glass in your head. So it was, you know, I mean, we're just talking, you know, every position. It was a hat on a hat, a body on a body. And you just, it, it was like this. It was just grown damn men playing. It was grown ass men playing. And, and you were telling me before, like the officials, Put the whistles down, <laughs> dude. Go for it. Go for it. Whatever you want. There was a game that I played, and and getting a little bit off track, but you guys love the story. There was a game I played during the '80s, and at that time there were only two officials. Well, one official gets hurt, so there was only there's only one official now. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you, on the other side of the other side of the backboard, other side of the court where he wasn't wasn't watching there was screaming and kicking and <laughs> it was it was, it was like
like, damn, what the hell is happening over here on this side? Because he couldn't see. He could just he was calling the ball area. So it was that that was another game that I just remembered that, you know, they just got crazy. But yeah, that was uh it was two teams that did not did not give any quarter to the other team. Yeah, and Cedric, so as commonplace in that series, your Celtics fall behind early, claw their way back. Your second half is is just a, it's a it's a flat out street fight. Can you take us through the the, the final minute where Larry, of course, uh, you know, make makes the big offensive play, and then trying to describe what that arena was like when that final buzzer goes off is just unbelievable what what transpires on the floor which of course you yeah know, we can yeah, no longer was, see today yeah it was it was bedlam i mean it was bedlam it was um the fact that you had the, the guys the way they were playing and larry came down uh got the offensive read they missed a shot Dawkins missed a shot. Larry gets a rebound, comes down the left side of the court and banks it in. And that put us up by one. Then we get the ball. We make a great defensive stance. We get the ball. Gerald Henderson loses it. And they have one second on the clock. And we're only up by one. So they get a chance to inbound the ball. And I know I'm going to be in the middle of this because they're trying to set uh, a lob play for Derek for uh, Dr. J. And who was setting the pick? That damn big, big ass Carwell Jones and Daryl Dawkins came down and set, set the pick on me. I felt like I was in the damn playing football. It's like these two linemen came down and whacked me. And Larry put enough pressure on the ball that the ball hit the top of the backboard and it ricocheted. And I finally hit it and knocked it out of bounds and the game was over. And it was just like, it was essentially like having your first child. Like you, you dare to watch your first child. Like, damn, we just, we just had a baby. There's a baby out here. Like, that's that's how good it was, man. It's like, like, oh, this is my first child. <laughs> hey, baby, come here a minute. And so it was, it was, it was just, it was just great. Yeah, I remember seeing Michael Michael Jordan with the emotion that when he won his first championship, you know, on the floor crying. And the way he did, and it was just the, the emotion that you that you're just releasing after all the pressure of a series like that. Uh, it was um, it, it was just it it was just it was scary. It was scary good. It was just that damn good. It was just scary good. How how good that game was, and how good that series was. It was it would be one of the forgotten series that in the NBA. I think one of the greatest series that probably has ever been played in the NBA that people don't talk about. Yeah. And Max, I, I want to ask and, 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 and close on this, you know, how that series sets up this incredible uh, domino effect that happens the rest of the decade, uh, it, mainly in the East with the Celtics and the Sixers and then the Celtics and the Pistons. And then of course the Pistons, uh, with with the Bulls, with BJ and Michael and Scotty, um, mm-hmm. how, how important and and in your mind, uh, what what role did that play in setting up this incredible era of rivalries in the league? What it what it did, it made all those teams you talk about, it made them follow our blueprint. That if you're going to be the team out west, that you know they just like to run and gun, 
And what you knew, if you got physical, you knocked them down a few times, you know, that, that fast break was going to slow down to a crawl. So they didn't, they weren't the team. And I think, like I said, Chicago learned to play like that. You know, Detroit played like that and just went down the line. So I, I think that was the, that was the brilliance about that particular series and all these teams. I, I laughed because I did a podcast with Michael Cooper and I said, dude, you weren't playing anybody out West. You know, with the Lakers <laughs> and you play Phoenix. The Lakers, you might play Portland. You might play somebody, but they weren't playing anybody. I mean, it was that's when the East was was tough as nails, man. You you didn't have you didn't have a day off, and uh, and and you looked at every position that I guarded. I know I didn't have a day off because my coach at that time, Bill Fitch, I thought I was a a lover, not a fighter. He said, "You're going to be the defender." on every guy, every tough forward right now in the NBA. I'm like, damn, dude, I, I know how to score. He's like, nope, Larry can score, you can defend. So it changed my perspective about playing in the NBA. Like I had to defend the basketball and not, you know, and, and not just be a scorer. Man, you had you had Bernard King pre-injury, young Dominique, Julius cool. Irving, cool. Alex English. James Worthy. Look, Kiki Vandeway, Vandeway. Worthy, Mike Mitchell. You can go down the line. Silky Wilkes, you can go down the line and pick a forward out on each team. Chicago had had a beast for a while. Nobody will talk about, but was Orlando Woolridge. He was a high-hopping dude. (laughs) You know, you went around that rim, and then you add Sean Kemp into the mix. These were guys I was guarding at the time. Uh, but people mm. always ask me, say, who was the best player you played with and the best player you played against? And to me, you know, everybody forgot that my, my career ended uh, in Houston. And the best player I played against and with was Akeem Olajuwon. Mm. That's why I think that he's forgotten because of this one moment. And, and not kicking at Michael or anything, but this is what we'll say. And I don't think if you want to argue this point, please, please bring to the table. But. Akeem Olajuwon controlled more of the floor than any player has ever controlled in the NBA. Amen, somebody. I need a choir to speak up. Uh, uh, all right, I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm listening, Max. I'm listening. Thinking about it on both ends. That's great He controlled both ends of the floor. He controlled both ends of the floor. He controlled it more than Michael. Michael, Michael guarded his man, but Olajuwon, Dude, you were looking over your shoulder. You didn't know. You didn't know what to do. I, and what he did to David Robinson in that series, that was abusive. That, oh, that, that was that, that, that was child, that was, that that was child abuse right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, oh. Elijah Wong offensively, too. The things he was able to do, that dream shake. And at the end of the day, you think of it this way: all the players later on didn't go to Michael for footwork. Who they go to? They went to Elijah Wong. All these guys end up going to Elijah Wan. There's no kick at Michael, but I just think that Elijah Wan controlled more of the game than anybody I've ever seen play. I played a game with him in um, my la- one of my last playoff games. Uh, we were playing Seattle. 49-26. Um, eight and eight. And I'm talking about eight block shots. Yeah. yeah. People, people don't realize how great he was before he got to the championship mountaintop 
And um, oh. obviously, uh, 86, the first year you're out of Boston, him and Samson together before uh, that tandem falls apart was uh, was just the introduction to uh, oh, oh, how it, great it, he became. It really, I mean, it really was. I remember Bill Fish telling me during my – it was last year in the league, maybe 11th or 12th year, and it was late in the game, and we were up by a good good number. And I've been on the bench for a while. He he tells me, say, go in and get go in and get Elijah Wan before he gets hurt. Get hurt. Dude would have been killing lions and bears, that kind of stuff in Africa. You think he's about to get hurt and you put me in the game in that late in the game? Please. So that's how good I, I saw thought I saw Elijah Wan and and I think you would have to talk to people who played, you know, with him in Houston to give that would give you that same kind of uh, example of who he was. For sure. Cedric, this was great. Um, so great to, to jump on, tell these stories, talk about the present, talk about the past. And uh, we will definitely be uh, reaching out to do this again and, and let you know when, uh, when this, uh, this stuff is going to drop, but be safe at, uh, be safe at TJ Maxx. Yeah. <laughs> be safe. Yeah, out I'm, there. I'm, I'm, I'm... Yeah, I'm trying not to grab nobody's cart. So there you have it. Cedric Cornbread Maxwell, he indeed called us from a TJ Maxx in Boston as the world was starting to open up there when we uh, had our time with him. Very interesting take on Akeem Olajuwon, who, of course, was an all-time great player on both ends. I recently had the chance to sit down with Sam Cassell uh, on a film project I'm making, and he made many references to uh, Olajuwon's greatness. So... Uh, sometimes he gets lost in the conversation of the greatest players of both the 80s, 90s, and of course all time, as he is easily one of the top five greatest to play the center position. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Have a great week. And of course, stay healthy, stay safe, stay pure. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.